Hello and welcome to Chutzpah. I'm your host, Adam Greenman. My days are spent as the CEO of the Jewish Alliance of Greater Rhode Island, an organization focused on building a stronger, more vibrant community here in the Ocean State. One of the joys of my job is getting to sit down with leaders throughout our Jewish community. I learned so much from the members of our community, and this podcast is an opportunity to bring our conversations and insights directly to you. Our guest today is Jillian Friedman Fox, the Executive Director of Newport Classical. Jillian is a veteran of the music world, and her latest work with Newport Classical had the New York Times writing about the rich tapestry of works she is bringing to life as Executive Director of the program. I'm so excited to have Jillian with us on Chutzpah to give us a window into the world of creative leadership and to discuss what it means to bring innovation to such a classic medium. One quick note, this interview was recorded at the height of the Omicron surge, that is, remotely. It may sound a bit different from past recordings, but it wouldn't be called chutzpah if we weren't okay with switching things up a bit. If you're a chutzpah fan, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us and review us on Spotify. As always, if you have a lightning round question you think we should ask our guests, or you just want to provide us with some feedback on the show, please email us at chutzpah at jewishallianceri.org. And now, today's episode of Chutzpah. And I'm so excited to welcome today's guest, Jillian Friedman Fox, who is the executive director of Newport Classical, which is formerly the Newport Music Festival. Um, I have had the chance to meet Jillian uh, a few times now and just really excited to dive deep into all things classical music, all things Newport, and um, and all things leadership. So Jillian, welcome to Chutzpah. Thanks, Adam. I'm glad to be here. So why don't we dive in? Um, tell me a little bit about your upbringing. So uh, I grew up in Homedale, New Jersey, uh, which for those who know anything about New Jersey, I have to say that it's exit 114 on the parkway. And uh, it's kind of the center of the state, close to the beach. Uh, grew up there my whole life um, in a, uh, a very active um, reformed Jewish family. Um, my uh we actually, I went to temple and grew up in the temple that my dad was bar mitzvahed in. So a multi-generation relationship with that, that was Temple Shalom in Aberdeen. Um, and uh, Rabbi Malinger, who is the rabbi there currently, um, married me and my husband. So still very um, involved in a very small, tight-knit Jewish community. Uh, I grew up going to URJ Camp Harlem, starting at the age of 10. Um, which brought me to Israel twice, um, as well as staying as a uh, CIT and uh, counselor for a couple of years. So very involved in kind of that uh, arm of, of Jewish youth and participation. And I was a song leader and um, definitely a Jewish camp um, and specifically a URJ camp really kind of defined my, my upbringing and my Jewish identity. Wow. That's great. And do you think that the musical background in Judaism sort of played a role in what I'm guessing is a pretty big love of music, given the position that you uh, that you hold? 
It definitely played a role. I would say I was kind, I was a generalist, a musical generalist growing up. Um, I did musical theater. I played piano. I sang, um, I sang, which ended up becoming my primary instrument. Um, and that was classical voice. And that's what I went to, to school to study partially. Um, but, you know, I definitely, I learned to play guitar because of, uh, you know, that's what you do at, at Jewish camp. And, um, and I think that um, my Jewish music background um, definitely just kind of rounded out everything that I did and, and allowed it to be just kind of a part, music be every part of who I am. Um, but I think that, you know, I definitely had that phase where I thought maybe I'd, I'd be a cantor, um, but yet it just, for one reason or another, just was was really drawn to kind of um, career supporting artists and um, and not necessarily uh, through religion. So tell me a little bit about Newport Classical. You know, if you were to describe it at a cocktail party or a or a Zoom gathering, I guess how <laughs> would you how would you describe it? So Newport Classical, previously known as Newport Music Festival, has been around for fifty four years. Um, Newport Music Festival was best known for three weeks of exceptional classical music and specifically chamber music uh, performed in the mansions all around Newport. Um, and most iconically, the Breakers, the Elms, Marble House, and the Chinese Tea House. And it was this incredibly unique um, festival format in which we were kind of bringing back the salon series or the house concert um, and bringing back performances to these homes in a way that would have been quite the norm at the turn of the century. But putting a positive, fresh spin on it in which uh, you don't have to know the family. You didn't have to be a, a personal friend of the Vanderbilt or Astors to, to be able to attend, that anybody could be welcome to experience exceptional classical music in this really intimate and historic setting. Um, and uh, it had a really positive uh, persona for just those three weeks. Um, and it was certainly a key driver um, in Newport and in the Newport summers. Um, but we had a significant number of people coming in from out of town uh, that would travel from internationally to be able to hear kind of up and coming talent um, or world premieres of, you know, rarely heard manuscripts that had recently been unearthed, which was a really neat um, aspect. And kind of the festival had this history of adventurousness and musical curiosity when it comes to um, romantic era classical music. I, I love that concept of taking something that was once very uh, sort of privileged and, and very uh, exclusive and opening it up to everybody. That's such a great symbolic sort of concept. Absolutely. And it's still yeah. so special. And um, everybody can kind of feel like at once they're going back in time at one of our concerts, but also kind of bringing the past into the present. Um, you know, we've really stepped up and specifically in this past year, um, elevating living composers up into that same level as the kind of core canon of classical music. And so having concerts that feature repertoire both by Brahms and Beethoven, but also by some of the wonderful living composers who are writing today and will really shape that next generation of what classical music is. How long have you been leading the organization? I just had my one year mark. So it has been, yeah, I started January 4th of 2021. Um, and so it has been certainly um, a whirlwind, you know, 
running right from the start, any of those kind of sayings, it, that is what it has been. <laughs> what was it like to begin in an organization that is, its focus is putting on events and putting on opportunities for people to gather in the midst of a pandemic? I can only imagine that you know, sort of that becomes challenge number one as soon as you start your job. Absolutely. Um, I, I came to Newport Classical with the mindset that this was an incredible opportunity. I chose to certainly be aware and acknowledge all of the challenges that laid ahead, but to approach them with a mindset of opportunity and um, a start for something to try things new that maybe wouldn't have been acceptable in previous years. And so um, the first thing I did was let's not say what we can't do, but say what we can do. And so it was very clear that we could have outdoor performances. Um, January of 21, all of the science was pointing towards gathering outdoors in limited capacities was safe. And so then we just had to determine how could we deliver a high quality artistic experience that still kind of kept to that core of presenting intimate concerts in historic venues, but doing it outside. And, um, we were really, I am pleased to say, incredibly successful in presenting a 17 sold to capacity concerts in July of 21, all of which were outdoors. We, um, we invested a ton of time and energy and resources into um, setting up a beautiful tent outside of the Breakers. Um, the Breakers is historic just as much on its outside for its, its architecture and its gardens as it is for its interior. So we figured, let's just tell everyone, you're still going to the Breakers, but we're going to appreciate a different vantage point this time. And uh, we invested um, with the support of several wonderful area grants, having acoustic paneling and the way that the um, the audio amplification was really delicate and, and sensitive to be able to kind of mimic that indoor acoustic experience while still being outside. We limited capacity. We did social distancing between households. Um, and all of that together ended up producing a really fantastic festival. It was by no means um, the same or, you know, what we had been doing in the past. But I think that patrons were really open to that because it was COVID, right? And they were they came at it with a with an open mind and a willingness that I think many were surprised at how enjoyable um, that it could be outside. That being said, we all said at the end of the festival, so glad that we can do that, but back inside for 2022. Um, and I will be very happy to not have to look at a tent for a little while. <laughs> You're listening to Chutzpah, a Jewish roadie podcast. Now you're listening to us tell you what you're listening to. Would you rather hear your own business, publication, event, or product being featured in an ad spot just like this one? You can become a sponsor of Jewish roadie podcast and advertise with us. Don't miss a chance to be featured in Chutzpah or one of our upcoming series in a new way to advertise with Jewish roadie media. For more information, contact Peter Zeldin at P-Z-E-L-D-I-N at jewishallianceri.org. Totally, totally understand that. Um, so switching gears a little bit, was leadership always something you wanted to pursue? Absolutely. I think I, I've always found myself to be 
um, gravitating towards positions in which I have a seat at the table. Um, that's something that's always been really important to me. Even if I am not the head honcho, the, the person making the decision, I love being in the position to have conversations and, and um, use diplomacy and conversation to arrive at decisions that end up influencing leadership. And so um, I have always felt for me that it's not always about um, leadership isn't about establishing your own point of view and executing your own point of view, but lifting up others' voices and um, giving others the resources and the space they need to really excel at what they do. And so I think that's how I've really gravitated towards this area of leadership is that uh, arts administration really is all about the musicians um, and the composers and the patrons. And it is not about the art administrators. We should be behind the scenes, amplifying the voices of those who are on stage and giving them the, putting them in the position to really excel and share their, their music with, with others and to create connections between musicians and patrons um, and musicians and communities. And so um, I think this for me has been really kind of a place where I can um, truly excel and bring people together um, and use those skills and then kind of let others tell their story. Great. I, I love the concept of leader as facilitator, uh, whether it's facil facilitating staff to um, you know really be their best or facilitating connections between folks so that we can get to the end goal. I, I love that concept of leader as facilitator. So thanks for sharing that. Um, what are some of the most important decisions that you make as the leader of Newport Classical? I think that for the most part, I'm now kind of stepping into a phase where we just um, finalized our strategic plan. And so um, that process has been a lot of little decisions that end up really telling a story and creating a vision for the future and how we move forward. I view myself as being kind of the, um, the vision communicator for the organization. And um, so many of the decisions that I make are these kind of small little ones that seem sometimes inconsequential um, that, um, that end up making a really big difference in the long run. And so for me, I think that, um, the decisions around programming lead to vision, the decisions around um, board and, and who we welcome into our community um, lead to that vision. Um, and, you know, even things as, as kind of in the weeds as ticket pricing and on sale dates and things like that um, really lead to kind of this big story that we're trying to tell, which is that classical music is for everyone and creating an accessible community where everyone feels welcome to kind of, whether you are a classical mu music aficionado or you're just curious about what classical music might be, that there's a place for you here and making all the tiny little day-to-day -day decisions um, that lead to successfully communicating that message. I think that is such a great point. So often people look at leadership and think about the macro. They think about, or they talk about the 20,000 foot view. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that you know, to get to that 20,000 foot view, it takes a whole lot of 
get it, you know, points along the way. And it's a whole lot of small decisions that lead up to a big vision, big change, big, big picture. Um, so I, again, I appreciate that sort of take on that. Well, and I think part of that comes from, um, being, you know, a a more modest sized nonprofit and the way and the leadership structure that is ingrained within nonprofits. Um, the fact that, uh, executive director, yes, but lead, you know, number one decision maker. No, I wouldn't say that at all. And, you know, very much, um, you know, the way that nonprofits are led are in collaboration and, and in constant connection with the board of directors and their, um, their experience and their knowledge and their connections in the community and and what they deem as being important very much influences the decisions we end up making as a group. And so um, leaving space for that and leaving space for um, being able to pivot or or have an idea and then say, okay, yes, and we're going to go kind of catty corner to that because that's what's best Mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, Leaving space for those kinds of decision making is really important. You know, thinking about that, uh, because like you said, you make a whole lot of decisions, uh, small ones that lead to big ones. Uh, what are some of the hardest decisions you've had to make as a leader, either in this position or in previous positions? And talk me through a little bit the process that you go through when you have to make big decisions or hard decisions. I think identifying the staffing needs. Um, you know, I came in um, and the organization, we were a team of four um, and we're currently a team of six. Um, and for an organization of our size, that was a pretty significant um, period of growth for us, um, both in terms of kind of the, the team dynamics, but also in terms of um, the nuts and bolts finances. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the, the biggest dis- challenges in that is you have to say, okay, if we're going to grow our team, we are committing to sustaining this team and the financial resources it needs to sustain that team long term, um, and that we are committed to ensuring that we have the revenues to be able to support that long term. Um, And so sometimes that can feel a little daunting, but I also very much have faith in um, both the board of directors and their support, but also the fact that every new team member brings um, growth with them. And in many ways, um, you know, additional sources of revenue within the community and growth for the organization. Um, That very much aligned with our decision to go year round. Um, I think this was probably the biggest decision that we as an organization made this past year. Um, To me, it seemed really clear that there was demand for year round programming, specifically here in Newport. Um, You know, there are such a, there's such a wealth of, um, cultural and musical um, offerings in Providence. Um, but we all joke, you know, there are two bridges uh, for us to get there. And so Newport and Aquidneck Island, um, maybe some of those people either are driving all the way to Providence, but not seeing concerts as often as they would have if they were, it was closer, or they maybe aren't att- going to Providence, you know, December through February when there's snow on the ground. Um, and there's such a, a, a really, um, diverse year-round community here that uh, sometimes gets overlooked in the shoulder seasons. And so um, we made the decision to sell our corporate offices, uh, which we owned and they were in Middletown. Um, and we just said, these are not working for us. These aren't you know, meeting our organizational goals. And so we, we sold those and instead relocated our office and our storage spaces to Emanuel Church, which is on Dearborn between Spring and Thames, really right in downtown Newport. 
And uh, the reason for this was it allowed us to move into a space that had a, a performance space. Uh, the Emanuel Church, separate from their um, sanctuary, had a recital hall um, that was uh, actually it was originally called an auditorium with stage uh, on the original building plans. And then it became a day school. Um, and then during um, COVID, the height of COVID, unfortunately, the day school had to close. Um, and this, this beautiful space was sitting vacant. And the rector, Della Wigger-Wells, and um, our board president, Susanna Laramie, had the vision to say that this could become a performance space once again. And so in March, uh, we relocated all of our things over there and have been operating out of there for almost a year now. And this space, we've invested a lot of, you know, elbow grease and love into it to be able to truly turn it back into a recital hall. It uh, seats 182 uh, people in very comfortable chairs, and all of the uh, musicians who performed there so far have raved about the clarity of sound in this space, um, particularly for solo piano. It's just a really excellent place to hear uh, chamber music. And so uh, we launched the chamber series in September of 21 um, to sold to capacity audiences and have had three sold out concerts so far. Um, we did have to postpone our January concert with Daniel Del Pino to June. But the nice thing about that is he just moved from the first slot in the spring to the last spot in the spring. So uh, folks can still see five more concerts uh, this year. And I really see this as an opportunity for growth, um, an opportunity to partner with the Newport Tourism uh, team at Discover Newport to attract people to Rhode Island in the colder months that there's a lot to do here and fantastic food and the beach is just as beautiful in the winter. Um, so uh, it's been um, a really big um, jump and leap of faith, I think, for the organization um, that we are already seeing paying off. But there was um, a big faith piece in that, uh, you know, where we had to say, okay, we know this is what it's going to cost. We hope this is what it's going to um, deliver in returns and not just on financial, but in terms of branding um, and in terms of expanding our, our relevance and our, our importance in the community. Sounds like um, made quite a few big changes or big decisions over the last year, which is great and really moving the organization forward. One of them, and we talked about this at the top, is the name change. Um, going from Newport Music Festival to Newport Classical, which certainly uh, reflects, I think, the changes that you've talked about going year round and not just being a music festival. Um, but talk to me a little bit about what went into that decision and how you went about it, because a name change comes uh, with a lot of uh, risk, with a lot of, you know, there's a lot of brand equity and those kinds of things. So Talk to me through that a little bit. Absolutely. So um, when I was still in the interview phase for this position, um, I asked them about that. I asked the the interview committee, I said, you know, do you ever, ever get confused for Newport jazz or Newport folk? Um, I'm curious about your, you know, Google SEO and, <laughs> and, and, and how many people call thinking they're getting customer service and, uh, you know, I was just, just wondering out loud. And uh, they said all the time, all the time. And uh, despite the fact that Newport Music Festival has been around for almost as long um, as Newport Jazz. And so, uh, and, you know, and in many ways has a, a wider, in terms of the calendar, a wider uh, presence in the community. 
uh, though, of course, Newport Jazz and Newport Folk, which I have been to and are fantastic and are excellent at what they do, they're not at all what we do. And so that's kind of confusion was not helpful to the brand um, because we are just so different. Um, apples and oranges doesn't even describe, right? So I started asking, well, how do the people on the know, you know, how do people on the inside clarify it? And I started listening and I would hear that people naturally would just kind of slot in the word classical. So people would say, oh, I'm going to the Newport Classical Music Festival, or I'm going to Newport Music Festival, the classical one. And uh, and so it, it brought up this conversation of, well, well, maybe we need classical in our title. And so we partnered with Samets Blackstone Associates, their branding firm out of um, Boston, and uh, created a process that we thought would ask the questions with leaving enough room, open-ended room at the end for what the answer would be. And, and part of what I knew when we were facing with this decision was that we had to have community buy-in. 53 years is a pretty significant legacy of which we still have patrons who came to that first year, um, still attending wow. now. And so I knew that if we were going to make the decision to make a change, we had to bring along those kind of stakeholders with us through the process. And so we identified 40 key stakeholders, um, which represented several different groups, um, donors, longtime patrons, um, uh, key community leaders, as well as a group that we identified as the group we wish we were attracting. Um, we identified, you know, folks who go to other classical music festivals, people who are willing to travel for classical music, and why are they maybe not traveling to Newport currently? And uh, through a series of interviews and um, long conversations and targeted questions, um, we arrived at the fact that uh, the word Newport had to stay in the title. Um, that was absolutely unanimous. The idea that festival was no longer important to the brand, um, but the idea that classical um, would be a really important um, uh, element to bring into the festival. And the logo piece was a much longer conversation, if you can believe it. Um, uh, we, we found our tagline, um, ta uh, timeless music for today also was, um, a pretty, a pretty quick and unanimous decision. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, we got Newport classical and everybody agrees and timeless music for today. and Everybody agrees. And then you start putting graphic design in front of folks and it was a whole different story. <laughs> um, but I think in the end that kind of, um, diversity of opinion and um, preference really lended us with a fantastic logo that is artful and um, modern while still being um, classic. Um, and I think speaks really well to, um, to who we are and also who we aspire to be. Chutzpah is brought to you by Jewish Roadie Media, but don't leave us lonely. If you're interested in partnering with us, we would love to feature your business, publication, event, and more in an ad spot just like this one. When you realize you showed up to a dinner party empty-handed, we're the friends saying, don't worry, this whitefish salad is from both of us now. Join the podcast potluck today to be a sponsor of Jewish Roadie Podcasts. For more information, contact Peter Zeldin at p-z-e-l-d-i-n at jewishallianceri.org. So Jillian, tell me who is who is or was someone that you look to as an example of good leadership and why? 
Um, I think for me, it was um, someone that I worked with at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Michelle Miller Burns. Um, she was uh, the uh, vice president of development and then COO and interim ED. She, she several leadership positions. Um, but there was something about her leadership style where she truly empowered her team. It was all about finding the right people um, and then letting those people tell you where they were going to excel instead of starting with the position or, you know, starting with your needs and kind of square peg round hole scenario. And she um, really empowered her team um, to be able to excel and to grow. And she invested in her team. I think everyone she hired during her tenure is still there, even though she's not, um, which I think says a lot. And they're all in elevated positions from when she hired them, which I think says a lot. Um, However, I think she also stayed very engaged in the process and um, never would just kind of delegate and then be done with it. She was still very an active member of the team. Um, and I've always really taken that on in my own leadership style that I want to um, empower and um, give my team the autonomy and the confidence to kind of lead their projects and to take ownership of their work, but also know that we're all in it together and have a collaborative um, work style within the team. Um, and so that's always really been something that's, that's um, inspired me as well as uh, Jonathan Martin, who is um, president and CEO at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. And I, I think what I've always loved about him and taken from that is that he's incredibly, incredibly, visionary um, in that he just, he dreams big and thinks like, this is where I, I would love to be. And then let's scale back and how do we get there? Um, and I think that has really kind of defanged some of the big initiatives for me that just don't seem as scary. The idea that we, you know, in one year, um, you know, changed the name, did a festival in a pandemic, moved to a new venue, launched a rebrand, you know, and did a strategic plan all in one year sounds insane. But it was what I felt needed to get us through the pandemic in a place where we were really thriving instead of just consistently responding to the pandemic. That's terrific. So what do you see as your most important job as a leader? I really think it is um, bringing everybody onto the same page. I really see myself as kind of the diplomat um, role in that bringing the staff and the musicians and the volunteers and the patrons and the board of directors all to a place where we have a shared vision and a shared direction and we're moving in the, in the same direction. Um, and I think that in many ways it is, how do I take what everyone else sees as their Newport classical and has ownership of, and then be able to create something in the middle that works for everybody. Um, and where everybody feels like they've won at least a little bit. Um, and so I really view myself as kind of a connector and that kind of central force bringing everybody together. Um, because at the end of the day, Newport classical is a community event. It is something that brings people together through music and connects people who come from very different backgrounds or experiences to have this shared opportunity. And so how do we continue to really keep that at the forefront um, and keep, you know, the music as the vehicle to be able to, to achieve that? The diplomatic role, I think, is, is a really, really important one. And one that I think gets overlooked sometimes, the idea that um, so much of the work is connecting people, connecting 
ideas um, and that that requires a deftness of working with people and diplomacy. So that's great. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer that leadership can happen at any level of an organization. So I'd love if you could give some advice to our listeners that may be looking to lead regardless of where they are in an organization. Oh, absolutely. I think um, one of the one of the best examples um, for me is currently within my team, um, we have a, a team member who just, he actually doesn't come from classical music, um, but was just so excited about this opportunity and has um, comes to me probably on a biweekly basis with some idea that he's like, I know this sounds crazy, but what if, and I would say he would probably tell you that 90% of the time I say, okay, let's try it. Like run with it, put together, you know, show me what that looks like, put together, you know, a budget or, you know, what the resources you need to make that happen and, and let's do it. And I think for me, I think um, if you're, you know, just starting in an organization, identifying what your passions are and where you feel like you can bring something really unique to the table and then using your voice, um, not being afraid to kind of go to the, the right person in your team and say, hey, I had this idea and I'd love to try it. Um, and I think by taking ownership of it, saying I have this idea and I want to make it happen, right? Not I have this idea and you should go do it, <laughs> um, really um, allows you to, to prove yourself, allows you to both find fulfillment in your work, but also um, contribute something to the team that maybe wouldn't have been possible if you weren't in that position. I truly believe that a diversity of opinion is so important to the success of any organization. Um, and that, you know, we very much are looking for that on our board of directors to have a really, you know, a group of board of directors that represents the community that we're looking to serve and, and all the diversity within that. I look for diversity of opinion and, and, in our programming, but also within the staff. If you have such a homogenous staff, um, it just gets so boring and it becomes same old every year. And so I love having team members with different backgrounds who can provide a different way to look at what we're doing and communicate what we're doing, um, especially he's in marketing. Um, so it's the perfect place for him to thrive um, in, that, in that space. But um, always love the new ideas. It's exciting. So, so much of our conversation has revolved around some of the big decisions you've made over the last year, you and the board and, and your team at Newport Classical. All of them have an element of risk associated with them. And so I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the importance of taking risk and not just holding back. Yeah, you know, I think calculated risk is is incredibly important. It's the only way that we can um, grow as an organization um, and, and not remain complacent. Um, I do find that in particular donors and, and individual donors tend to get really excited about calculated risks. And so that's kind of where sometimes that that the payoff comes. Um, I think that your donors and your, your, your philanthropic supporters don't always want to see the same old thing every year. They want to see that you're expanding your reach and, and bringing something new for them to experience. And, and that's where the payoff hopefully um, kind of 
comes. But at the same time, you know, you can't take calculated risks without having a plan of how you're going to support those long term. And so right now, you know, we've come through a year of incredible growth and expansion. And and now we're kind of turning into the phase um, where we're looking at, okay, now how do we sustain those programs over the next three years? And how do we um, ensure that they are growing at a more manageable rate um, that, you know, okay, oh, nine new concerts, you know, it may not be possible to do 18 next year, but maybe it's 11. Um, and so what does um, sustainability look for us? Um, what does long-term growth look for us? And then what, when we're dreaming, you know, in three years, what's the crazy new idea in three years? So Jillian, who do you rely on for advice? Mm, I definitely have um, created a, like, confidential ED network that I uh, that I rely on. Um, part of that has actually been through the Rhode Island Foundation, which I've been really grateful for. Um, they uh, have cohorts of executive directors all over um, the nonprofit community in Rhode Island. And so I've been able to connect with some wonderful leaders outside of the music space, which is really fun for um, to kind of get that perspective. But also just throughout my career, I've, uh, you know, keeping my mentors close and making sure those are truly symbiotic two-way relationships, that it's not always me going to them needing advice, but me providing emotional support in return as well, um, has been really important. Um, one of the, the things that actually shouldn't continue to necessarily be helpful, but I, um, when I was a programmer and not an exec executive director, I uh, formed a, a cohort with uh, six other female symphony programmers. Um, and we took our meetings together in New York and we just kind of became this like rallying force for each other. And it's now grown into 18 women. Um, and wow. even though I'm not a programmer anymore, we all have a group chat and uh, we have, you know, regular Zoom check-ins. And um, I think sometimes having... Uh, getting advice from someone who's kind of adjacent to what you do and not exactly in the same boat can be um, just as helpful and kind of goes back to that diversity of opinions idea. Um, but I, I certainly rely on, you know, my husband um, and uh, my husband is in the music industry as well. So he's able to provide um, really valuable insight, um, not just professionally, but also, you know, seeing the personal toll of it all. Thank you. Um... So last question before we get to the lightning okay. rounds. Um, what is the biggest lesson in leadership that you've learned and how did you learn it? I think I'm still learning. Um, you know, I have the benefit of being pretty early in my career um, when I think about all the things I still want to do uh, with my career. Um, and I think for me, leadership is not about always being right and always being willing to learn every day from all directions, learning from my staff, learning from my volunteers, from my board and the musicians um, and others in the community and always kind of being open to new ideas and um, being wrong. And I think that for me, that's what I hope. Um, I hope I ever never lose that. I hope I'm always looking to learn more and challenge myself um, and grow into the leader I'm still yet to be. So Jillian, are you ready for the lightning round? I hope so. <laughs> All right. Favorite Jewish food? Matzah ball soup. Favorite Jewish entertainer? Ooh. Oh no. <laughs> um, Sasha Cohen. Favorite Jewish ritual or custom? Mm, Passover Seder. 
uh, bagel with lox or corned beef on rye? Bagel with lox only because I have not been able to find good corned beef on rye here. We'll have to get together. We'll, okay. We'll <laughs> Favorite Jewish holiday? Passover. It's gonna. It's a real strong one for me. <laughs> yeah. Favorite Yiddish word you like to slide into conversations? Schwitz. Do you like your kugel sweet or savory? Mm, neither. No kugel for me. Former Passover. Yep, still Passover. And if you could add one thing to the Seder plate, what would it be? Well, I'd remove the egg only because I just am not a fan of hard-boiled eggs. Um, everything I'm thinking of is not pushed for Passover. So that's... <laughs> Name one celebrity you want to do the horror with. Brian Reynolds. Okay. And final question, how do you spell Hanukkah? Mm, depends on my mood, but it's usually... C-H-A-N-N-U-K-A-H. Okay. I don't, is that, I don't, I, I don't know that I've ever known what, what is the correct way to spell Hanukkah. There is no correct way, which is why it's the great, great question. Although, um, I have completely told several guests that they spelled it wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Chutzpah, a Jewish roadie media production. Today's episode was made possible by the Jewish Alliance of Greater Rhode Island and was edited and produced by Emma Newberry. Each of our in-person interviews is recorded at the Residential Properties Limited Studio at the Dwyer's JCC. Special thanks to Jillian for our wonderful conversation today. Tune in next time to hear our season finale with Alan Litwin of KLR. In the meantime, you can follow us on Spotify and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about Jewish Roadie's projects and hear more from our community, head to jewishroadie.com, where you can also find our social media. That's it for today. See you next time on Chutzpah.